0: Today on Rafi Reviews, Rafi Reviews, Thor, Love and Thunder. I wouldn't say he's my favorite character. I wouldn't say I'm the biggest Thor fan. I wouldn't say he's like a top 10 fictional character for me. But the Marvel Cinematic Universe version of Thor is a character I really enjoy, despite sort of the ebbs and flows. I feel that, like, tonally speaking, Thor has kind of been up and down. Um, Very early on, I think Thor was presented as a bit more of a serious character than. You know, around the time of, say, Ragnarok and, uh, you know, even in, like, Infinity War and stuff, they they they, they turned up the comedy just a little bit. Um, But I just, I think Thor has had an interesting kind of uh, path. Um, Like, probably starting, like, Thor the Dark World. um, You know, after he thinks that Loki dies, and then everything that happens in Ragnarok. And then, uh, what is it? in Infinity War, he, he fails to stop Thanos, then in Endgame, he loses, he puts on a bunch of weight, and he kind of is at this, like, failure point in his life where he doesn't have much going on, um, so that by the end of Endgame, I I don't know, by the end of Endgame, you, you kind of think, like, I, I guess Thor's on the rise again, you know, I just think, like, a lot of interesting things have happened to Thor that at least from my perspective would sort of set up, um, just interesting stories to tell with him. Like he is someone who has lost so much and yet Asgard is preserved. You know, he, he did his job as an Asgardian in preserving his people. He did his job as like an Avenger, as a hero by, you know, helping defeat Thanos and all that stuff. It's like, what else does Thor have to do? Like, what else is there for him? And that's, like, an interesting question. And the thing about Thor Love and Thunder that I think really kind of keeps... It it keeps me from really liking the movie all that much is that the movie keeps creating these interesting ideas and then it has no interest in uh, exploring those ideas. And, like listen, I don't dislike comedy, right, I love comedy, but I think that whereas Ragnarok was able to hit all of the right balance points of comedy and action and, like, and like emotional drive as well, there was a lot of emotional drive with Thor Ragnarok, Love and Thunder really kind of feels like a big joke. It feels like um, it didn't have to exist, but so many kind of integral elements to, like, recent Thor comic books were engraved in this movie in order to justify it. Like, it feels like without Gore the God Butcher and without Jane Foster, it doesn't really feel like this movie has a whole lot of purpose to it. Um, And I think that is really what kind of disappoints me about it. So before we really get into everything, you know, the characters, notes, the future... Um, if you don't want this to be spoiled, I am going to give you, uh, my straight-up grade right now. Here's my grade. Um, no rush. There is no rush to go see this movie, at least from my opinion. I don't think it's, uh, a very good Marvel movie. It's especially disappointing because I didn't like, uh, Multiverse of Madness all that much either, but that's just my opinion. Um, I, I wouldn't rush out to see this movie. If it looks good and you do want to see it, obviously go see it. You're not gonna it won't be a waste of time, um, but I don't, this wouldn't be the Marvel movie for me to say, oh, see it as soon as you can, you know, I guess for, like, comparison's sake, if someone asked me, hey, I haven't watched Shang-Chi yet, should I watch that, I'd say, oh, yeah, definitely, and if someone asked me, if, you know, should I see Thor Love and Thunder, I'd say, yeah, you can wait, you know, just wait till it hits a streaming app, or, you know, if you want to go see it, but personally, I, you know, I would wait on it, um, it also just doesn't feel, and this might just be because, you know, it's the present and not the future yet, but there's so much of this movie where I don't know if it does matter down the line, so I'm just trying to think if it matters now, if it, like, makes a big difference to, like, like is Thor better off by the end of this compared to the end of Endgame, and I'm having a hard time deciding between those two things. I think, I don't know. <laughs> that's, I don't know, it the, it, the fact that it's hard for me to decide if this is a good endpoint for Thor, um, I think it's sort of, it, it kind of speaks to the quality of his character in this movie, so again, no rush to go see it, but if it looks interesting, go check it out. So we were just talking about him for a while, let's, let's talk a little bit more, we have Chris Hemsworth, of course, playing Thor, um, by this point, I think Hemsworth really understands this character. There is very much a sort of um, integration. I think you know he's he, it's it's one of those things where the actor's been playing the character for so long. It's kind of hard to separate him from the character, um, personality wise, the way he carries himself, all that stuff. Um, and again, in a lot of movies, it, it, maybe not some of the early stuff, but I I enjoy th- watching Thor in a lot of these movies, Thor Ragnarok, Endgame, Infinity War, you know, and I like just how experimental they got with Thor following, uh, Ragnarok, obviously they added the whole sort of, um, what's the name of that character, like, uh, I was about to say Crash Nebula, but that's, that's the Fairly Odd Parents character, Flash Gordon, the, the very Flash Gordon-esque elements they added to Thor in Thor Ragnarok, Um, I enjoyed it a lot. I enjoy that he was sort of allowed to do cosmic stuff with the Guardians, the Galaxy characters. I think he bounces off really well with that group of characters, which is why, um, I actually like the way that they're used in this movie. And again, just sort of the back and forth of, like, like, Thor's a very malleable, malleable character in that, like, dude lost his brother a couple times lost his father, lost his whole kingdom, turns out his sister is, uh, an evil, you know, evil warlord queen of some sort, um, you know, he lost his eye, the woman he loves, you know, had to leave him, Thor has lost a lot, and yet he, he bounces back, he bounces back from his hammer being crushed, he bounces back from being overweight and, uh, constantly, like, miserable, um, and and that's what I mean too. Like, there's so many elements to Thor that are kind of endearing because you see him rise and and bounce back from all of these, um, all these terrible things that happen to him. That like, w- going into this movie, I was kind of I was interested to see like what else is there. Like, it it seemed to me this was a story about Thor trying to find some kind of peace, but when it starts, he he's got nothing going on, and like I I. I I don't know, it's kinda of hard to take his quest for if he is if he is on a quest for peace within himself or purpose or something at the beginning of this movie, it's kind of hard to buy that. Um because when the movie starts, he he's just sitting there meditating until Star Lord asks for his help and then he's back to like fighting a war and, and, and that's the thing too, like when when Star Lord asks for Thor's help, Thor is cocky about it. Like, he, he puts on the ego again, and, like, it's, it's kind of Thor 1-ish, you know, the whole point to Thor in those first couple of movies was overcoming his arrogance, and despite those lessons, despite him losing everything, he's kind of gone back to, and, like, if that was part of it, you know, if part of the movie was, like, addressing how he's regressed as a person because he's lost so much, and he has to sort of regain his, like, uh, was his humility, you know? That would be fine. And, and like, they don't even... And they have the the chance to do that, because, obviously, Mjolnir is restored, and it's, uh, you know, an element of this movie. Someone might even say a character in this movie. But, like, I don't know. The the idea of him becoming worthy of it again, or the idea of him finding some sort of humility, it's not really done at all. (laughs) And, And, in fact, like, again without jumping too far ahead, the whole goal of the villain of this movie is to kill all the gods because the gods are, like, these terrible people. And what Thor sees throughout the movie is that the main villain might be right, at least when Thor meets uh, Zeus from, like, the Greek pantheon. Um, I don't know. We'll, we'll talk about more of that, uh, more about that later because that's a very interesting thing here. But I just feel like Thor doesn't really learn anything in this movie. Um, he doesn't come to a place of humility, I think, um, in like any, anything close to that, it's like his character arc, he goes through this character arc because it is sort of put upon him and not because he has like a, a natural, like transformation as a person. Um, and again, for a character like Thor, who's been through so many transformations um, it, I was left kind of confused, and kind of upset that the changes of his character don't come over the course of the story, they're sort of knee-jerk by the end of it, um, and again, it's like, if that change was throughout the movie, I feel like it's a little bit undercut by all of the humor, you know, people, it's rough, dude, people who don't like the Marvel movies, One of their favorite things to say is that every serious moment is undercut by some sort of joke, and there are scenes in this movie where I I was just, like, really hoping that they would let a meaningful moment just kind of sit and, like, exist without it being followed up by a joke that, like, uh, that undercuts it, you know? And true to what people say, like, that shit happens multiple times in this movie, Um, and and I understand this movie, you know, if if you want to present it as a comedy first, but if you're going into this being like, okay, this is a comedy, this is a comedy, I don't think the opening scene of this movie sort of reflects that, uh, that direction. But, yeah, Thor's back, um, he's back in shape, whatever. I, I like that the fat Thor thing is just a, an on and off switch now, at least in Endgame when he when he had that final fight against Thanos, at least he was still fat for that, you know? But, uh... Yeah, Chris Hemsworth is is, is Thor. He's also just, like, dumber now. Like, it's like... It's like... He's like a cartoon character now, right? Because it's like... The example I use is, like, Patrick from SpongeBob, because early on, Patrick was not nearly as dumb as he is now. That's kind of what Thor is like. Like, before... I think in, like, the very early movies... He wasn't stupid. He just didn't... He was a fish out of water. He didn't understand everything. But I think as time went on, like, Thor's, co- Thor's cockiness was exaggerated. I think I think Thor's cockiness was exaggerated. Um, Thor's sort of... Maybe not gullibility, but just like... I don't know. His immature nature, his dumbness, it was just exaggerated to a point where, like, now... Thor is just kind of a big joke. And that's, that's really upsetting to me. It, it's hard to take his plight seriously um, when it doesn't seem like he takes anything else seriously. Um, I want to mention these characters real quick. The, the Guardians of the Galaxy do appear in this movie. Uh, we have Chris Pratt as uh, Star-Lord, uh, Batista as Drax, Bradley Cooper as Rocket Raccoon, Vin Diesel as Groot, Palm Clemente as Mantis, Karen Gillan as Nebula, and Sean Gunn as Kraglin. Um they're here. <laughs> I actually don't mind the way that the Guardians are used. You know, they only show up at the beginning. Um, they are very much underplayed in this movie. Um, which, again, is is fine, you know? I don't need a whole movie where Thor is a member of the Guardians of the Galaxy. Um, I actually really like how, at the beginning of this movie, Thor is kind of their ace in the hole. Like, they're they struggling, and they're, like, actually... It's like w- when they don't use Thor... The Guardians actually have to, like, try and, you know, exert themselves and everything, you know? But when they have Thor, that, like, you see... Again, it's early on in the movie. They get Thor. Thor helps fight in this big war. And Star-Lord is, like, excited to see him enter the battle. And it's like, yeah, I guess that would make every battle easier if you had Thor on your side. Um, And it's kind of nice, too, because, you know, in in an actual presentation of character growth, while Thor does annoy some of the Guardians, especially Peter Quill, like, Peter is, is sort of come around to him. Um, again, you get that sense when Thor first interacts with the Guardians of the Galaxy that Star-Lord really doesn't like Thor, he's threatened by Thor. But by this point in the movie, after traveling with them, Star-Lord has sort of accepted Thor as, like, a, a temporary member. Um... And that's not to say he's eager to keep Thor on his side, and that, you know, you definitely see some of Thor's desperation come out when he knows that Star-Lord and the rest are going to leave him. But, I don't know, I just like the idea that we're not regressing and we're not repeating anything with the Star-Lord-Thor relationship. Star-Lord, again, has built up a bit of a tolerance to the way Thor is, um, and accepts him as a member of the team. That being said, they do ditch him and his screaming goats and his weird rock friend, but still, um, they were here, everyone got at least a line of dialogue, uh, and that's, that's cool, Mantis has a weird metal bit on her forehead, but nobody cares about Mantis in these movies, um, let's see, we just, we just mentioned him, and this is definitely, you know, this is definitely a character, okay, Korg, right? Korg is voiced by the director, Taika Waititi, um, in the first movie, or in in Ragnarok, I should say, he is a fun supporting character who, you know, becomes a pal of Thor. In this one, he is, like, Thor's, like, best friend. (laughs) And, like, it's, it's so funny how, like, so many of the Thor characters, like the Warriors 3 and Sif, they just get, like, sidelined, killed, ignored. Heimdall gets ignored, all that stuff. But, like, Korg is, like, actually Thor's friend. Like, it, it's very transparent in that. And, look, I don't I don't hate that. I think the Warrior 3 are pretty boring, too. But it's just very, like, obvious where Taika Waititi's attention was in terms of the supporting characters. That being said, I don't... Like, Korg doesn't do a lot. He's just, like, here for this movie... Um, and he, he kind of fills the role that, like, and again, he filled this role in Ragnarok as well, but it's, like, a lot of these Marvel movies, there needs to be a secondary character who's just there for, like, jokes, you know? Um, and that's, you know, no disrespect to characters like Ned from the Spider-Man movies or, uh, Louise from the Ant-Man movies. But like, you know what I mean. There's always a sort of side best friend character. I would even say Aquafina's character fills this role in uh in Shang-Chi. But like, and there's nothing wrong with it. I'm just saying Korg fits into that square. Um, there's also a lot of stuff they do with 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 Korg that doesn't really go anywhere. And I don't really know why they do it. Um, they kind of fake you out at one point in the movie by like it looks like Korg dies and Thor gets really mad about it. And that took me by surprise. I was like, "Oh shit, I didn't <laughs> I didn't expect anyone to die." And like I don't know, Korg dying would have been like a real like cherry on top kind of moment, at least for Thor cuz he's already lost so much. And he, and again, you wouldn't have expected it. But as soon as they kill him off, he's brought back as just a, a sentient face. You don't see him regrow his body he regrows it off screen at the very end of the movie, he's not involved in the last fight, um, it's really weird too, because, uh, what is it, in that moment, they're in, like, the city of the gods, and Korg points out his, his alien race's god, which is just another part, like, another rock dude, right, and part of me thought, like, oh, Korg will die here, and maybe his god will resurrect him or something, but no, it's, he just can't die, nobody can die, (laughs) um, I don't know though, like, Korg is, he's here, and he's not as funny as he was in Ragnarok, he doesn't do a lot in the plot, like, he, I don't know, I, I do like the bit that he's the one that sort of tells the legend of Thor, and, and everything that goes on with Thor and his, his past, um, but other than that, I, I, I don't know, I don't have much to say about that I was really into. Um, Tessa Thompson plays Valkyrie um, to basically no avail or no one's interest. Like, (laughs) dude, Valkyrie made such a strong impression in Thor Ragnarok. And, again, I keep saying this, but there are so many opportunities to do something interesting with her character here. You know, like, There's this whole bit where she's the king of New Asgard, right? And she admits to, you know, liking that position, but it means that she doesn't get to go on adventures or get into battles or any of the stuff that she used to do as a Valkyrie or as, like, a person that worked for uh, the Grand Master. They don't really do anything with that. It's kind of sad, actually. There's a scene where, like, she's having a drink with Korg, who is at that point just a face and she's just going over how sad and pathetic her life is and there's no resolution to that she's completely taken out of the very last fight for some reason and and so that's it like just she isn't again this is another character where it feels kind of directionless it feels like she was already in Ragnarok so we're bringing her back for this one but it's like there's and, and there's even this point where like they steal a weapon from Zeus And then Thor, like, asks Valkyrie to wield the weapon against Gore, the God Butcher. But that doesn't even, like, matter. Because by the very last fight, Thor is the one using the Thunderbolt. In fact, Valkyrie is, like, sitting at a hospital somewhere. Um, There's just a lot of decisions I don't really understand. And even to, like, the point where Valkyrie herself isn't incredibly funny, you know? Like, there's this whole ongoing thing where, with the power of Heimdall's son who we just find out exists here, Thor is able to communicate with the Asgardian children that Gore the God Butcher kidnaps, right? He's able to talk to the children, and like he's trying to talk to them, like in this very serious situation, he's trying to give them hope that things are gonna be okay. And Valkyrie is like tickling his nose with like a feather or something. And it's it's like Thor is trying to talk to these children and make them feel safe, but he's he keeps swiping at his face, because he can feel that someone is, is tickling his nose, and it's like, what, what are we doing here? We can't even have, like, this, this conversation, we can't even have this, like, important, like, very sensitive situation, with, it, it, like, it feels, <laughs> it feels like they had that scene, where Thor is trying to talk to these children, and someone, either Tessa Thompson or Taika Waititi, was like, you know what, this is kind of boring, we gotta put a joke in here, like, this <sighs> I'm not having fun. I should be smiling in every scene this is this isn't doing it for me Tessa just just tickle his nose a little bit we'll we'll do something with that like like the just the the lowest simplest, easiest form of comedy to insert into a scene that does not need comedy and would actually be detrimental to have comedy in it because of what's happening in the scene um and again, it's like. You could do so much. I, I remember in, Ragn- in Thor Ragnarok, when they go into the flashbacks of what happened with Valkyrie, she they show it in black and white. And I thought it was because, like, in Thor Ragnarok, it's just like, that that's the flashback. In Valkyrie's flashback, everything's in black and white. But in Thor Love and Thunder, the planet that Gore hides on is a planet that is completely black and white. Which looks really good. I think that's one of the best effects in the movie, which is, you know not saying much, because there's not a lot of good effects in this movie, but the completely black and white planet, with little bits of color from, like, those eye colors and, and electrical abilities and such, um, that all looks really good, and I thought, for a minute, I was like, oh man, are they gonna reveal that, like, the fight, because I know that the fight the Valkyries lost was against Hela, in, in Thor Ragnarok, but is the revelation gonna be that the fight between Hela and the Valkyries took place on this black and white planet, which is why Valkyrie is, like, drinking more and is sort of, like, um, you know, being weird about this whole battle, and, like, no, that's not, (laughs) there's no correlation, Valkyrie isn't giving any sort of arc in this movie, this doesn't end with her, like, like, I, I half expected her and Thor to, like, switch, like, roles by the end of this, like, Thor will stay on Earth and be in charge of New Asgard because that's that's his responsibility. He's he was the prince and now he's the king. Like, I, and 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 Valkyrie would be the one allowed to travel around because she's bored here. There's nothing for her to do here. She can't find herself here. You know, I remember with early marketing of this movie, there was something that I think it was Tessa Thompson that said this, but it was like, Valkyrie is of course the king of New Asgard, and in this movie she's going to be looking for her queen. And for a movie called Love and Thunder, you might even expect that, but no, not even by the end. In the end, Korg is the one that finds love, and Valkyrie just fucking sits (laughs) in New Asgard. And like, hey, maybe that's what you do with, uh, what's her name, with Sif, because Sif is just here, but but no, again, nothing is done. She doesn't, (laughs) Valkyrie doesn't find a queen, she doesn't, you know, do anything new at the end of the movie, I I don't know. (laughs) It feels like such a waste, which sucks because Valkyrie is a very cool character. Um, I suppose we can talk about this uh, other character now because they made a really big deal about bringing her back. So Natalie Portman returns to the MCU after being pissed off at, uh, was it Thor? The Dark World. But Natalie Portman is back as Jane Foster, uh, a.k.a. the Mighty Thor. Now, again, there is a lot of... Big build up to this. A lot of people were excited. It's a really big deal. Um, in the comics, Jane Foster becomes Thor around the same time that Sam Wilson becomes Captain America. So this felt very calculated. It felt like a new sort of era and a new direction for um, the MCU and what they're doing with their characters. And I think you know, I just I think that Jane Foster is not her as a character. Maybe a little bit her his character, but her her being here, her place in the story is very confusing to me, and I can't decide one way or the other about it, because, like, I imagine the way they got Natalie Portman back was, hey, look at how much money Thor Ragnarok made and how much fun people had making it, you know, B, we have this, because, I mean, we're at the point of spoilers now, like, Jane dies at the end of this movie from cancer, and I imagine them approaching her and being like, "Hey, listen. Here's we're bringing Jane Foster back. Uh, she's gonna be battling cancer, but while she's battling it, she's gonna be like the new Thor, and it's gonna be this whole thing. You're gonna have this triumphant uh, return to the MCU, and then like you're gonna go out in like a blaze of glory, like sacrificing yourself for the best, like like a, this whole big promise to her." And, and I imagine they ended it with, like, and the best part is, at the end, uh, you die. So it's really up to you if you want to come back and do more of these movies. Um, and I imagine that's what hooked her, right? And, like, like, I don't know how to feel, dude. Like, Jane Foster was never my favorite character, obviously. But, like, I'll say this. Like, we, we talked about it earlier. One of my big problems with Doctor Strange Multiverse of Madness was their insistence on Doctor Strange's relationship with um, Christine Palmer, which barely existed in the first Doctor Strange movie. At least here you can buy a little bit more the relationship between Thor and Jane because we've seen it before, you know? And they have to do a little bit of legwork to establish after Thor 2, Thor and Jane did have more of a relationship. And, and again, like, it's, it's through this, like, flashback montage that we kind of hit the first weird rock, at least for me. There's this bit where Thor is talking to Mjolnir and telling Mjolnir how much he loves Jane, and how, like, if anything happens to Thor, that Mjolnir, like, must protect Jane. And this kind of just, like, expression of love and care translates to Mjolnir as a new seal, basically making it so that, you know, whoever is worthy can lift Mjolnir, unless you're Jane Foster, in which case, like, you will help Jane Foster no matter what, um, and on one hand, I like that, I think it's a really cool twist on the whole, like, magical seal situation, I like that, I like the, I like to think Thor didn't know he did that, and I think that, I think that's the context, but, like, he probably thought that Thor, that the hammer would just kind of fly by itself to protect Jane. I don't think he ever expected that she would be able to lift it to protect herself. But, regardless, I like the idea that he didn't even know and that he was just sort of, like, humorously or sentimentally talking to his hammer in the way that Thor does. Um, But, on the other hand, I do think it kind of takes away from that because, like... I think in the comics, it's not that. I think in the comics, Jane is just worthy of picking up Mjolnir. And I like that a lot, too, because when you see Jane in this movie, you see that she, like, is a successful scientist. She has, like, she's written books, and there's this bit where she's helping someone understand a part of the book. um, And she, you know, she has this, like, scientist cool mentality. And, like... I think she's even trying to cure cancer on her own. Like, she she doesn't even trust doctors or chemo or anything. She's, like, trying to get it done on her own. Um, it would have been kind of cool if it was just a factor of, like, her being worthy. Or if that was even a part of the movie to explore, right? Because I don't think Jane ever questions it. And I don't think she ever finds out why. But, like, it would be interesting if she thought she could lift Mjolnir because she was worthy. Or, if she knew that it wasn't that, if she knew it was, like, because of Thor's love or whatever, like, the the idea of Jane struggling not just with, like, the physical aspects of cancer and the hammer, but it's also a matter of her thinking, like, do I only have this hammer because of my relationship with Thor? Like, am I really not worthy? Am I just getting the hammer out of pity and because Thor loves me, and trying to decide if that's like if that's a good substitution is it so bad that she has this power because someone loves her or does it mean less because it means that she isn't worthy by the standards of Odin someone that she barely knew and someone who disrespected her the first couple times they met um I I think that would be really interesting to explore and unfortunately this isn't a Jane Foster movie despite what some of the marketing might tell you um but yeah, no, and there's this other thing where, like, and we'll, we'll talk about it more, but, like, the idea of a mortal, a mortal person who is damaged and who is dying picking up this magical weapon that is both killing them but allowing them to sort of do what they believe is right is something else that is mentioned but never really explored, I think, to the fullest potential. Um, ultimately, I think it was kind of a waste to even have Jane Foster in this movie, Because it's not about her. Like, she... If you're going to make Jane Foster Thor, and you're going to put such a focus on her battling cancer and trying to be Thor and, you know, stuff like that, I don't think you can do it as, like, this side thing. I think it has to be the main point of the movie. But we still have Chris Hemsworth Thor around, so I don't think they wanted to undermine his character because he's the one that people are going to see, you know? Um... You know, that all being said, I like a lot of the Jane Foster Thor stuff. Um, like, the, the new abilities of Mjolnir being able to break away into separate pieces. Um, I really didn't understand the last fight, because she uses that power to absorb pieces of the Necro Sword, Which, like, what would have happened if she didn't break the sword? Like, would the sword, like, have corrupted Mjolnir? That's up in the air. No one knows what the fuck any of that means. Um, I don't even yeah, no, that's, I don't even know what that is, um, and again, like, the whole cancer subplot is, I was gonna say handled well, but it's, it's kind of, I don't know, I, I, I don't think it was handled terribly, like, even when the, even when Thor, when, when Jane admits to Thor that she has cancer, it's, like, somber for, like, a minute, you know, and they they kind of let that sit, but even then, not for that long. Um, and they kind of play into it of this thing of, like, you know, while she has time on this Earth, Jane wants to do the right thing. Um, I, this is kind of a weird bit, but they... They establish that every time she becomes Thor, it's putting more restraint on her body, which is, like, fine. Yeah, that's what it does. But technically speaking, and I understand why they didn't want to go in full detail, in the comics... The reason why it's killing Jane to become Thor is because every time she becomes Thor, um, all of the poisons in her body are eradicated. It's essentially like her body is purified every time she becomes Thor, which means the chemotherapy inside of her body, or I guess the chemo inside of her body, is being cleansed. So every time, you know, she turns into Thor, all the progress being made to fight the cancer just disappears. Um but I get why they didn't want to be like specific about that I guess. Um it's just really weird that like not only is a character with cancer in the MCU but that like this is where they focus on that and this is where they talk about it because the rest of the movie couldn't give a rat's ass about cancer or dying or mortality like like these are all very serious subjects that I think in a in a good superhero movie uh, would lead to really interesting dialogue, and, and, like, these, these swaying, like, uh, epic, not even epic, I don't know, like, it would just be more personal and sentimental to the audience, it would make you feel more for these characters, to know that one of them is on, you know, death's door, basically, and in this movie, it's just something that's part of it, you know, it's, it's not the main thing, it's not something we focus on, it's part of a bigger puzzle, and the rest of the puzzle is all, like, cartoon ass cheeks, you know, but yeah, Natalie Portman is back until she's not, unless she is, oh, um, another big name that they put in this one is Russell Crowe, uh, who was once Superman's dad, (laughs) Uh, he plays Zeus in this, uh, they have this whole scene in, like, the City of the Gods and stuff, um, sure, <laughs> I, I don't know, dude, the, the whole Zeus thing, the whole Zeus thing goes back to the whole Gods thing, um, this idea that Gods in the Marvel Cinematic Universe are just cocky, selfish assholes, um, like, this whole idea that the Gods are, like, yeah, cocky, <laughs> uh, self-centered assholes who don't really care about mortals. um, they that's, like, a whole thing, and we'll, we'll talk about that, I definitely made a note of that, but as far as Russell Crowe goes, sure, I mean, he, he does this funny accent, and, uh, he wears a little skirt, I don't know, dude, like, this is another thing where it's, like, I get the commentary if there is one, but, like, it would have been neat to see, like, a version of Zeus in this who is like just really awesome, you know. In this, he's just like a grow. He's he's more like Dionysus than he is like Zeus, but whatever. He's just it's weird, right? He's just sort of here, and I don't. I don't have a lot to talk about him, you know. Um, they do they do something with him in the post credit scene. Um, maybe he'll show up again. And uh, I kind of like the idea that playing on this idea of like. Uh, Thor acknowledges that he based a lot of his stuff off of Zeus, um, and I think that's kind of a cool detail. We, we, it's funny how so late into this, we learn more and more about Thor after the fact, like, like we learn here that he based a lot of his whole thing on Zeus, um, we learn that he was friends with this giant, like, um, snow monster god that was, lived on another planet, Um, in Eternals, we learned that when he was a kid, he followed around, um, who did he follow around? Kingo? I think it was Kingo. (laughs) Oh, it was either Kingo or, or Icarus, but I think it was Kingo. But, like, we, we, we learned so much about Thor's past and his history way after the fact of, of it being relevant or important to his character. Um, but I really want to talk about this character. The last one we're going to talk about here. Uh, Christian Bale plays Gore the God Butcher. who The, the main villain of the movie. Um, dude, this guy personifies tone shift in an incredible way. Um, so I, first of all, I like this character a lot. I think Christian Bale does a terrific job. Whether he's being somber or whether he's kind of being cackling, mustache-twirling, insane-o villain you know? Um, I just think he in a 100%. Uh, as far as how much of him was in the movie, I'm, I'm, I've seen a lot of people complain that there wasn't enough of him, but I think that, you know, his, his scenes and his moments wouldn't be as impactful or leave as much as a mark if he showed up a bit more, like, frequently. Like, yeah, there wasn't a lot of gore in this movie. <laughs> gore. There wasn't a lot of Christian Bale's character in this movie, but for what there is, I think, uh, he made an impact, you know, and this, you know, in a time where, like, Marvel villains are not always great half the time, um, I think, I think Gore made a good example, um, it dropped me, I was fidgeting with something and I dropped it, <laughs> um, there's a couple things about Gore that kind of irked me, um, again, the movie starts with him, <sighs> The movie starts with Gore's daughter dying and him having to bury her in the sand. And then he finds a god and his and it's his god and he worships his god, and his god is like a huge asshole who doesn't care that his daughter died. Again. Tone shift, right? Like so sombre. This dude, like, this movie opens up with child death. And and then we and then we meet this, like, big goofy MCU god character, and Gore is just like. Pathetically laughed at by by this God and, and shit, and like it just so happens that this God was fighting some dude who carried the Necro sword, and the Necro sword can kill gods. it also just so happens, and you know Gore is really mad at this God, and so the sword goes to gore, and now Gore kills the god, and now he's corrupt and he's got shadow powers, fucking like come on. <laughs> You couldn't have stretched that like I know I, I don't need another hour of this movie of gore being a a sad you know childless man walking the desert, but like I would have really appreciated like a montage of Gore escalating as a god butcher, you know like if the first time it it went like if even if he didn't find the 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 sword in the oasis. Like, if, after his daughter died, the sword found him, or he found it in the sand or something, or like, or if he already had the sword, and it was just a regular sword until his daughter died, and it was some sort of evil, magic, vengeful, based curse, you know, because as it happens, the necro sword just comes out of nowhere. Some other character we don't know about brought the sword to the oasis conveniently so that Gore could pick it up and kill this god, but if if there were anything else. If he found the sword in the desert, if the sword came to him when it felt his anguish, if he already had the sword but it was just regular until, until something magical happened to him, you know, anything else, you know, we don't even get a history. We like Thor acknowledges like the Necro Sword exists. All the other gods acknowledge that it exists, but no one talks about like, it was crafted by this and that, or it was used by this person, or. Oh, everyone thought it was just a myth, but it turns out it's real. Like, like, and there's a lot of stuff like that because it's it's not just the Necrosword, but they they introduce Eternity in this Marvel movie, and and it's just like oh yeah, Eternity exists. It's this whole thing over here. You know, we didn't talk about it when Thanos was around, but like it it totally totally happens. You know, it's it's just a whole other thing over here. Don't worry about it. It didn't matter until now. Why are you asking questions? And that's how I feel about the Necrosword. The Necro is a really cool concept. It's like this. This sword that allows you to control shadows and it, it corrupts you and makes you evil. Like I understand, because in the comics the Necro Sword is connected to the symbiotes and Venom, and all that stuff. But like, they don't do that here. Even though we just established like a piece of the Venom suit is in the MCU. Whatever, the least they could have done is like, I don't know. Maybe they're still. Maybe they'll still do this. But like. In, at the end of Eternals, there's a scene where Kit Harington opens a box and there's a black sword, and the black sword is seemingly whispering to him. And in this movie, Thor, Love and Thunder, Gore the God Butcher gets a black sword that whispers to him. May, and it's like, this, the sword is destroyed now, so like, are we going to learn later that these swords were part of a set, or that, like, the person that made the Ebony Blade and the Necro Sword, like, it's like the same person. Like, is there like some sort of uh, weapons crafts, uh, weapons crafter? Is there a blacksmith who makes like corrupted evil weapons? You know, is that going to be the revelation? Because otherwise, I don't know what the deal is with the Necro Sword. I just know that it gives you cool mor- Mortal Kombat shadow powers. Um, I also like that Gore isn't extremely muscular. He's more like emaciated. He kind of looks like a skeleton man in robes. Um, when he is being, like, kooky and crazy and laughing, like, it's kind of weird, but it's also, like, it's Bale putting in 100%. Um, I don't mind that his plot was to use the kids as leverage, because he knows what the importance of children are, and I understand that he's being, in quotations, corrupted. But I don't like the fact that, like, Gore almost killed the kids, like I sort of expected and maybe it's bad of me to expect but I think it would have made more of a difference if you know gore didn't have a problem kidnapping the children he didn't have a problem scaring them or trying to make them lose faith in thor but trying like hurting them or killing them is kind of a stretch too far in my mind because gore's whole story kicks off with a child dying you know and I I I would sort of like the idea of, you know, Gore only has problem with gods and the people that worship gods, but children don't worship gods because you know they have a reason to. They worship gods because they're taught to, um, and I like the idea of of Gore trying to corrupt that and and destroy their hope before they can die in the sand like his child. Um, but they really don't. I mean, they, they I think they do have a bit of him mentioning his child to these kids. But just by the end, when he's going to see Eternity, he is straight up, like, cool with the monsters trying to kill the kids or a giant rock falling on the kids. Um, And I don't know. I I, I think there was almost an idea there of how this character works set against children, but it really wasn't fully uh, executed. I, I like that he's not invincible either. They make it a point a couple times to show that if, you know, he's fighting more than one opponent uh, Gore is gonna be outmatched, even with this god-killing sword, which, by the way, would have been a cool thing to do for, like, an opening montage of him, like, getting the sword, killing his god, and then, like, we cut to, an- we cut, like, you know, maybe a year later, he kills another god. A year later, he kills another god. Like, I-, I guess maybe you can't have it be in years, because he's supposed to be a recent character, but just, like, a montage of, like, a couple days of Gore going on this, like, slaughtering quest, and, like, you can invent new kinds of gods, you can, you can insert, like, I don't know, you can even make a, make it like a, a DC Comics jab, you right? know, he, he goes in and kills Neptune, or he goes in and kills, uh, Mercury, whose hat kind of looks like Jay Garrett's hat, like, or I guess vice versa. Does, wait, does he have a hat? Or am I thinking of, no, because he has the hat because of, uh, World War One. I. I don't know, you could have done a joke about him killing, like, other Greek and Roman gods and having it be a parallel to him killing, like, DC characters. But, regardless, like, we don't get a lot of gore, so we can't get those kinds of scenes. But it's, it's what I mean of, like, I think Christian Bale's gore is, a re- is like, awesome, and his scenes are really good, and his, for the most part, his, his interactions with other characters, I think, are fine. But, like, when he meets with Thor or Korg or Jane or Valkyrie, it's like, oh, okay, we're not doing comedy anymore, because, because gore's in the room, right, <laughs> like, we gotta shut, we can't do the screaming goats bit, we can't do the, uh, Thor's hammer is jealous, because he thinks that Thor's cheating on the hammer with a different hammer, we can't do any of that funny shit, no, 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 because we're, we're doing serious now, because gore's in the room, like, we can't joke about Jane, you know, Having cancer, breaking the sink, and then talking about doing a catchphrase. No, no, no. We're back to gore, so it's serious again. Um, which again, I imagine if you're someone like Taika Waititi or a writer for this movie, when you get to the bits with gore, it's like okay, now I gotta, I gotta pay attention to what I'm doing. I can't just let, I can't just let the improv kind of come out and stuff. And, and apparently, there's a lot of gore stuff that was cut from the movie that Christian Bale like, like he, he tried, you know. And it's like. I feel kind of bad, right? Because this was a this is another big breakout role for Bale, who at least in recent years you know him as like Batman or something, you know, or American Psycho. And this was his big MCU breakout role. He was the villain, the the big cheese of this movie. And considering how popular and well written Hela was and Thor Ragnarok, you really expect Gore to be a breakout character here. And so much was left on the cutting room floor, or I guess butchering room floor. And he's just so weirdly counterbalanced against the humor of this movie that it, it doesn't feel like he fits here. And I don't know if that's a detriment or an advantage to the movie. Okay, and now we can sort of run through some notes that I took here. Okay, all right, here we go. There we go. All right, here we go. Um, the CGI slash VFX are not very good. I think we've all talked about this. Everyone, you've seen it on Twitter. Um, a lot of the stuff I can sort of get over or forgive. The bit where Thor summons his new costume, I don't mind the new costume, but the helmet is weird. Especially because it's it's there for a minute and then it's gone. And I know that Thor has a history of briefly wearing a helmet and then taking it off. But when it looks as bad as it looks in this movie, I... Jeez, I can't get over it, man. Um, yeah, there was a couple stuff like that. And I'm sure there's a lot of specific situations that other people will bring up. But I just wanted to briefly mention it because I know it's a huge... Factor going into this. That people were talking about. Um, that I, I I agree that a lot of the the CGI. Could have used some work. It's funny. Um, what is it? with Waititi and Tessa Thompson. Did a YouTube video. Where they're looking at some scenes from Thor Ragnarok. Or Thor Love and Thunder. And they mentioned how the effects work doesn't look very good. And it's like when you're when you're the director. And you're talking about how the movie doesn't look good. Like that's not funny to me. That's also not like. Self deprecating, it's like you you can say that about like, if you're an artist, you can judge your own work. But when you're kind of just repeating what everyone else is saying, and it's something recent, like I don't know, it's I don't think it's a good look. Um, where did the necro sword come from? We talked about that. I would have loved to hear more about this uh, necro sword. Um, oh, I'm getting really sick of these corruption stories. <laughs> Like, and we've only had a few of them. Like, the, the ones that come to mind are the story of, um, Scarlet Witch with the, um, what's that evil book called? Um, the Darkhold. And how the Darkhold corrupted her, and, and that's why she's on a quest to get her kids back. It's, it's not because Wanda has been through enough trauma that her intentions have just become darker and more villainous. No. It has to be that an evil book made her bad, and it gave her that extra push, It can't be entirely up to the character. There needs to be some other factor. That way, when we bring Wanda back, and she's a good guy, uh, we can just forgive it all because she was corrupted by the book. And, uh, you know, I know they're not going to do that with Gore because Gore is dead as a doornail. Um, But, like, I didn't need the sword to whisper sweet nothings into his ear. I didn't need, like, the... He didn't go insane after his daughter died. He went insane after his daughter died and he got the sword. And I don't... Like, I just feel like it's got to be one way or the other. I feel like it's either got to be... Gore is this somber, soft-spoken character who's on this killing spree because he's traumatized from the death of his daughter. Or Gore is this star-craving, mad, giggling, mustache-twirling asshole because he went crazy from the death of his daughter. I don't need the sword or the influence of the sword to be the thing that pushes him over the edge. He already, like Nothing is going to drive him crazier than watching his daughter die because his god didn't save her. I don't need the sword to be evil, too. You know, I mean, it can be powerful, but I don't need it to be corrupting. Um, let's see, the tone shift is really hard to uh, deal with. We talked about that a lot. So this is one, right, that, for me, this was the biggest theme of the movie that goes nowhere. So I noticed there's a huge theme of the difference of love and worship, right? Because a lot of this movie has to do with gods. A lot of this movie has to do with people worshiping gods. You know, Gore worshiped a god. Um, Thor idolized Zeus growing up. Like, okay, here, here we go. Let's, let's take it from the top, right? Gore spent his whole life praying to a god that didn't save his daughter and when he met that god, the god laughed in his face, and so Gore rejected all gods and went on this killing spree. Thor grew up idolizing Zeus, but then when he re-meets him and seeks his help, Zeus is this big selfish coward, and everything that Thor has sort of, you know, been looking up to regarding Zeus um, is crushed. He met his hero, and he was crushed, and he, he had to realize that the person he idolized is just a big phony, um, what else, I'm sure there's another example that, oh, throughout the movie, you know, again, the, the Asgardian kids are kidnapped, and so Thor, through the power of Heimdall's son, of course, um, is able to talk to the children, and give them, like, these, he's able to tell them his stories of adventures, and, like, the, it's kind of nice, like, the kids are obviously scared and kidnapped, but Thor is trying to keep their spirits high by telling them of his outrageous adventures and how everything's going to be okay and how he's going to go save them. And all of that is tested against the torments of of Gore, who shows up there physically. You know, scares the kids and tells them that gods are like pathetic, no, no, like nothingness, and that, that you know he that they can't depend on Thor or the gods because Gore couldn't depend on the gods either. Um, so it's this, like, it's this tug of war of, like, worship, worship of gods and worship of heroes, and what that can do to a person. Like, it, it might lift your spirits, or it might be used against you to dash all your hopes away. Um, and that kind of plays into the love thing, too, right? Because, uh, Thor, Thor loves Jane still, and, and he, he never stopped loving her, and in, in this he has to, like, kind of accept that, like, like, the, I don't know, dude, it's, <laughs> love's in the name of the movie, you know, choosing love is a big thing by the end. I guess you could make the connection that, like, like, love is, like, the better half of worship. Or, like, there's some amount of love that's in the concept of worshipping something. But, like, it's better to love than worship? I guess? Uh, <laughs> you know, by the end of it, Thor doesn't... I don't know. That, that's what I mean. Like, it doesn't feel like it exactly goes all the way with that premise. Like, it sort of feels like Thor is supposed to understand from gore and from, under, from meeting, um you know, Zeus, who is his childhood hero, that Thor is supposed to understand that gods aren't, like, worth worshipping, or at the very least, like, some. not all of them are worth worshipping, you know? I mean, okay. Let's, let's put this all on Front Street. First of all, I'm recording this part two days after the fact of me recording the first half of this. But, like, thinking about it, right, in Thor Ragnarok, Thor learns about the sins of his father. Right? He learns of all the terrible things that Odin did, and he learns that the reason Hela is a villain in Thor 3 is because of the way that Odin raised her. And despite that, he tries to take Asgard in a better direction and try to move on from that past. He doesn't want to repeat the sins of his father. And so in this movie, if we're following a similar logic, it's like, okay, like, like in Thor Ragnarok... Actually, you can kind of follow it the whole way through. In the first Thor movie, Thor's faith in himself is tested, right? In Thor The Dark World, his faith in Loki is tested. In Thor Ragnarok, his faith in his father and, you know, I guess his realm is tested. So now in Thor Love and Thunder, Thor's faith in godhood is tested. And unlike those other three movies it never feels like thor has like a opening of eyes moment it never feels like he reflects on the fact that like no gore might have had a point there are a lot of gods who aren't doing the right thing and as a result of these gods being so up their own butts gore the god butcher is, is slaughtering people and and people you know are are at, are at risk you know and now it's not just gore it's like it's like a chain reaction. It's like if it weren't for the gods being so merciless, Gore wouldn't be on this killing spree. If Gore wasn't on, if Gore wasn't on the killing spree, then these children wouldn't be kidnapped. It's like the ineffectuality of gods puts you know not only the, the gods at risk, but like the future generation of Asgard at risk. So I don't know. I feel like there's definitely something there, and I think it would have kind of fit better into this, if that was more focused on, but it, it really isn't, and I think because it's just because there's so much else going on in this movie. Okay, uh, something else, uh, so towards the beginning of the movie, when we see what's going on with Jane Foster, um, Jane's supporting cast kind of shows up like checking off boxes, is what I kind of see it as, like, um, Kat Dennings shows up playing her character who, uh, I can't remember what her character is, uh, Darcy, Darcy Lewis or something, um, Straight off the heels of WandaVision, where she didn't really have a, an outro to that show. There was no resolution to Darcy in that. But, like, Darcy shows up for one scene, and then we don't see her again in the movie. Um, <laughs> and then we see, uh, what is it, Jane's father, whose name I also... I, I can't remember his name for sure. But uh, he shows up on a tablet, and it, I think he's on a, a video call with, with Jane, but it's like... It's like, well, Jane's a main character in this movie, so we we have to use her support. It's like... <laughs> like, in Thor Ragnarok, I can believe that they killed off the Warriors 3 and just didn't use Sif because Taika Waititi just wasn't interested in using those characters. He wanted to use his, his new characters, like, like, uh, like Korg and Valkyrie and stuff. And then in this movie, it's a similar thing, where it's like, oh, you're using Jane Foster? Well, you kind of have to use her supporting characters, right? And he's like, I'll, I'll include them, but I'm not going to use them, you know? Um, again, if this were a Jane Foster movie, I imagine that her father and her best friend would play a bit bigger of a part, but them being here just feels like, you know, if they weren't here, people would be asking how come they didn't show up. Um, so uh, another thing about Ragnarok that I like, that this movie kind of dropped the ball with, In Ragnarok, we see Planet Sakar, right? It's this gladiatorial planet run by the Grandmaster, who's a terrific character, who's really fun. Um, They have this whole gladiatorial combat thing, and the Hulk is, like, worshipped there, and the whole city has, like, this pop cult, like, like super vibrant color, Um, a lot of Jack Kirby-inspired design. Like, it has a personality and an appearance that, you know, you can identify, and it makes it, like entertaining entertaining like half of the fun of ragnarok is that location in this movie i think they try to do it again with omnipotent city which is this huge i guess planet city realm they don't really explain it but it's where all the gods come to commune from like the greek pantheon and all the other it's funny you see the greek pantheon (laughs) you see the greek pantheon um and then the other ones are kind of just mentioned and the ones you see are all made up ones Seems like a missed opportunity. Like, you, like we just had the Egyptians, Egyptian gods show up in, in Moon Knight. This seems like it would have been a good place. Or, like, I don't know, Bast from, like, the Wakandan uh, religion? I don't know. Whatever. Um, and, like, Omni, uh, they have, like, these soldiers who bleed gold, and it looks really cool. Like, we see only a little bit of Omnipotent City, but not enough that it has the same kind of location character as Planet Sakaar. And I think Opponent City was supposed to be, like, like a big deal, and it was supposed to be, like, the location that people remember. Because they make a big deal of it, like, they show it in the trailers, they talk about it up until they get there, and, like, you know, obviously that's where you get the Zeus scene, which links, <laughs> links to the post-credit scene later. Um, that's where they get, like, the lightning bolt. It's, like, the whole acknowledgement that the wider pantheon of gods still exists in the MCU, And yet, we're only there briefly, (laughs) and then we leave and never talk about it. There's even Celestials walking around there, which should also be a big deal, because we just, like, we established the the Celestials way back, but we just, like, were reminded of them in Eternals. So, like, kind of weird that it's just, like, here and then we're gone. Um, Also weird, this is the first Marvel movie to include Eternity. Uh, In the comics, Eternity is a character. He, He... It is, like, you know, the embodiment of everything. And it can change its appearance and its size and all that stuff. Um, Here they just turned it into a wishing well, which is, like, why? Why, like, I... This is definitely a Marvel villain problem. But I don't think there are enough Marvel villains... Every Marvel villain, right? Here's what I'll say. Every Marvel villain is out for, like, something. Like, some, like, physical, tangible thing. Like, like like Scarlet Witch wanted America Chavez so that she could do yada, yada, yada. Um, Gore the God Butcher wants Eternity so he could do yada, yada, yada. <laughs> um, what else? Oh, um, the Mandarin from Shang-Chi wants to reach the, like, hidden city so that he can break into, like, the the dark demon dungeon or whatever, so he can yada yada yada. Like, everyone, every villain is after something. Like, I, <laughs> I, like, like, Spider-Man No Way Home doesn't need any more smoke up its butt, but at least Green Goblin wasn't, like, out for, like, a, a bomb that could blow up the city. He wasn't looking for, like, a dimensional rift that could bring more villains And No, he was just out there fucking around. He killed Spider-Man's aunt and then, <laughs> and then ran off to go do more bad things. Like, a lot of these villains, I would say too many of these villains lately, are after something, and I don't know if it's just, like, an after effect of Thanos, or what. I mean, I guess they don't do that in Eternals. In Eternals, the Deviants are just kind of out for the main characters, so they kind of just skip over that. I mean, I guess, I guess, uh, what is it? By the end, Icarus is like, I'm gonna get... The I'm gonna get the celestial in the middle of the earth and and, and, and have it like okay th- that okay th- there's another example. Icarus wants to wake up the celestial in the middle of the Earth so it can yada yada yada. And like I don't mind villains having a motivation, but like Gore the God butcher <laughs> it, it, like just by name itself, you know what his deal is. you know what his goal is. I don't think he needs a shortcut, you know? Anyway. (laughs) Anyway. Oh, just, this is a weird place to bring in Eternity. I don't know. I feel like we've gone so far now. We already had the Infinity Gauntlet. Now we're doing Eternity. I don't know. It's weird. Um, let's see. The movie has trouble focusing. I think we talked about this a little bit before. Again, there's been a space between me recording this, this, uh, review. Um this movie has to be a Thor adventure, a Jane Foster superhero origin story. It has to include Valkyrie's return to battle from being, like, a leader. Um, but because it's still Thor, and it, the movie is named after him, like, he's... I don't know. He's still the last character standing. Like, granted, Jane comes in at the very end, too, but most of the back half is... is I don't know, dude. They should just, like... I don't know. It's it. I keep saying I don't know because I'm trying to think of better ways to express my problem. But I, I think my problem is that if this movie were just about Thor dealing with Gore the God Butcher, I'd probably have an easier time following it. If this movie was an origin story and it was the adventure of Jane Foster as Thor, I'd probably have an easier time getting into it. If this movie... If even half of this movie was about Valkyrie reflecting on her position now as a leader, as opposed to her time as a warrior, I might be a bit more invested in it. But we have three different characters, two of whom actually have stories. The other one is kind of left on the cutting cutting room floor. We also have like this villain whose motivations are pretty understandable, all things considered. And we're juggling all of that with, like, a love story between a man, a woman, and two hammers. (laughs) I think it's just too much. I don't know. Um, da-da-da-da-da. Oh, Sif was here. Talk about, you know, checking a box off. Sif was here. She lost her arm, which is like... It used to be that if a character lost an arm, it would be like, oh, man, how is this gonna affect them going forward? But it's Sif. So she could get a robot arm, she could have a stump... It's not going to matter what they do. I mean, I guess for the sake of representation, they they could give her a prosthetic arm or something, or or not. What I'm saying is it's not going to matter what they do with Sif because they never, ever want to focus on Sif or what's going on with her, you know? Like, she wasn't even there. (laughs) She wasn't even there when Asgard was destroyed, when the Warriors Three were killed, you know, when Thor went through his, like, like big Lebowski phase and lost everything. She wasn't even there for the final battle and end game. Like, sh- like I where's that story where she just like comes back into Asgard society? Like, like I want that. I want that story of her coming back to New Asgard and like not knowing what happened and like for her to know that Asgard and all her friends died and then she comes to New Asgard and it's like a tourist spot and the person leading new Asgard is, like, this complete stranger who abandoned Asgard, like, years ago to become, like, a, a gladiator cop or some shit, and she just gets drunk, and, and she hits on other women, and, like, I mean, I guess she hits on men, too, but, like, <laughs> just the idea of Sif coming back, her entire world, because Thor had time to, like, deal with that. Thor was there the whole time, but, like, the idea of Sif coming back and seeing, like, her whole world overturned like that, like, that would be an interesting story. But then we can't get screaming goat jokes, so I don't know. To, I, don't, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> okay, the last bit we gotta talk about is the future. You know, going forward from Thor: Love and Thunder, what can we expect to see? A lot of this is just kind of predictions, but here we go. Um, first thing in a post-credit scene, we get to see Hercules. Um, cool. He's played by Brett Goldstein. I haven't seen anything with Brett in it. Um, I love Hercules in Marvel Comics. He, he's like one of my favorite. I, I would say he's not obscure. He's been an Avenger and stuff, but I like I like Hercules a lot. Um, I think I read the Charles Soule run of Hercules in like two thousand and fifteen, um, and I like that run a lot. Um, like I was I was confused. <laughs> let's let's start with that. I was a little confused because like, are does does this mean they're they keep doing like Thor movies? Or like what? <laughs> Cause I, I, I don't. But by the look at the ending, I didn't. I didn't figure we were gonna get more Thor movies anytime soon. So, w- where is Hercules gonna go? You know, like. I have no idea. Like, if, if Hercules, if like, uh, what is it? If Mordo from Doctor Strange One has any, any inclination, Hercules might just show up like I don't know, eight years too late, and. I don't know, not even be the version of him that was introduced, I don't know, I keep saying I don't know, I'm very sorry about that, um, I will say, like, I don't love Harry Styles as, like, Star Fox, but I did like his introduction in, in the, at the end of Eternals more than than the Hercules, this, Her- this Hercules one was, like, very serious, and, like, that's fine, but, I only know Hercules from Marvel Comics, and he's way more of a goofball. But, I don't know, that could change. What I think will happen, and, and I only thought about this recently. It's a good thing, actually, had time to think about this part. So, we kind of know that there's some sort of, like, government Avengers being built, right? By the Seinfeld lady. Um, we know she's getting U.S. Agent. She's getting the new Black Widow. And there's sort of, like, assumptions that we've made so far. Like, maybe she's going to get Abomination. Um, who else? There's someone else on the tip of my... Uh... It, we know we're getting another, like, Iron Man show. We're getting uh, Armor Wars, which is supposed to sh- uh, star uh, Rhodey, War Machine. Um, we might get some sort of evil Iron Man <laughs> uh, you know, character from that basically we know that there's some sort of dark avengers slash like thunderbolts uh team being built right i could see hercules being like seinfeld lady's answer to thor right he's a god character he's new i could very easily see her like kind of dragging him along being like oh yeah we'll help you find thor yeah we'll get everyone on it we'll search the universe we'll we'll help you find thor And, like, they never do. (laughs) It's just her lying to him so that he can work on her, like, Dark Avengers team or something. Um, that being said, like, I I don't know if Hercules has been on Thunderbolts. He hasn't been on the Dark Avengers, but his uncle Ares has. So that seems like enough of a connection there. Um, it's also possible, like, this is way, this is way further of reach, so... Before the champions, which is like the cool team of young superheroes we have now in the comics, the original champions were like Angel, Iceman, um, Ghost Rider, Black Widow, and Hercules. So, you know, Black Widow, Hercules, we're, we already know Seinfeld Lady has a Black Widow. Maybe she's putting together her version of the champions, which would be kind of funny because we have Miss Marvel, who is also a founder of her own champions team, I don't know. It's really it's, it's a little up in the air, but I really do think we're gonna see Miss Marvel and her new Avengers champions, Young Avengers, whatever, versus Seinfeld ladies, Thunderbolts, Dark Avengers, whatever. <laughs> T- team name patent like a uh, pending right, but I could see Hercules um, being used in that way because I just don't think, <laughs> I don't think the next project we're gonna see in Phase Five is you know, Thor 5 versus Hercules or something, you know, the God Wars, you know, that's a a cool enough name, but I don't think that's where we're going to get, we know we're going to get more Thor though, and and this is kind of, (laughs) this is kind of funny, so both Taika Waititi and Chris Hemsworth were surprised at the viewing of the movie, because at the very end, there's a title, there's a card that says Thor will return, and both of them were kind of confused, and I sort of take that as like, You know, clearly the studio was like, oh, well, we're gonna bring Thor back. But my question is, do they mean Chris Hemsworth Thor or do they mean Jane Foster Thor? Because at the end of this, the other post-credit scene is that Jane, you know, she had died of cancer, but she died a Warrior's death, and so she gets to go to Valhalla and hang out with, like, Heimdall and, I guess, the Warriors Three and, I don't know, maybe Odin? Maybe? (laughs) Um, but she gets to go there. And, and like, the, the Thor will return thing is, like, probably optimistic. I, I don't know if it's, like, like straightforward or, or, or confirmed or anything, but, like, I think Natalie Portman came back for this project because the door would be open by the end. She knew her character would be dying, but if she made enough of an impact and if she had enough fun making the movie, um... There's the possibility of her coming back to reprise her role as Jane Foster. And I think the Valhalla after credit scene is kind of that door being left open, you know? Because now that we know she's in this afterlife, there's nothing saying she can't come back from it, right? Because death in the MCU has been pretty... I would say death in the MCU, and I mean real death, not like Loki death or Vision death... Or snapped away death. Okay, hold on. <laughs> maybe maybe I should track back what I'm saying here. Like, like even when Quicksilver died, and they had Quicksilver show up in WandaVision, they still didn't use the original actor from Age of Ultron, right? I feel like they, you know, when it comes to death in the MCU, under most circumstances, it's a pretty solid thing. It, it basically stays the way it is. Even even Loki, time-displaced or otherwise, like, we saw him die, and that version of him is dead. So, to have a post-credit scene where you see Valhalla, you see Jane Foster, like, that that's very different. The only other time we've seen a character in the afterlife uh, was uh, in, in Moon Knight. In Moon Knight, uh, what is it? Moon Knight dies. <laughs> but then he refuses... Uh, heaven to come back to earth and he he comes back right so i don't think there's anything saying that natalie portman if she wanted to couldn't come back as jane foster thor especially to have the story of jane foster refusing like basically eternal bliss in order to come back and be thor um and like look that's very much in the air because it's it's natalie portman we don't know exactly how much fun <laughs> What degree of fun she had making this movie, or if she wants to come back and do it again, but like if you're gonna introduce Jane Foster Thor, it's kind of a bummer to then just have her die at the end of the movie. you know it would be like if at the end of Captain America and the Winter or sorry, that's not what that show's called it would be like if at the end of Falcon and the Winter Soldier um in order to save the world, uh, Sam Wilson sacrificed himself, right, and then I don't know. Bucky picked up the shield or old, old Steve Rogers came back and he picked up the shield. Um, and for some reason he had a daughter, I guess, um, it would just kind of feel like a waste, you know, cause Jane Foster Thor is a big deal in the comics and you, you set it up in this movie, you know, I don't know. There I go again saying, I don't know. That's my catchphrase, I guess. Um, so... Uh, also in the future, I guess maybe Thor Girl? I don't know much about Thor Girl. Thor girl is a, a character in Marvel Comics who just looks like a teenage girl dressed as Thor. Um, I actually know more about her Ultimate Universe version, where she's literally just a Thor cosplayer. But uh, it, it could be a thing, right? Because at, at the end of this movie, Thor... Uh, Thor... So, Gore revives his daughter using his Eternity Wish. And then, after Gore and Jane both die, Thor adopts Gore's daughter, who I guess her name is Love now. And she is coincidentally played by Chris Hemsworth's actual daughter. Um, also, conveniently enough, when we see flashbacks of Thor as a kid, uh, we see both of his sons acting as young Thor. But um, by the end of this, Thor has a daughter, and he's teaching her how to fight. Fight evil, (laughs) and they're both on the on the battlefield. Um, See again another theme to this whole movie is kids. I guess Um, the children. You know the the children are the ones who are hoping Thor will come save them, but also they're the ones that are having their hopes dashed by Gore. Gore himself had a child that that died on his watch. Um, These children are Asgard's future. By the end of the movie. Thor uses Zeus's lightning bolt to empower the kid so they can help him fight. I like all that stuff a lot. I like the theme of children in this movie. The idea of Thor having a kid by the end, I'm fine with that too, if it means Thor gets to kind of sit back and, and not do anything for a while. Like, I don't want to see Thor Odinson <laughs> in the MCU for, like, another ten years. Like, the next time they show up, like, his new daughter, Love... Thor girl whatever should be like a teenager or something because like I don't I I love Thor and I love Thor in these movies I don't need a whole movie of him being a dad and it's also just like such a Hollywood like like (laughs) what what does the what does the whiteboard say make them a dad Alright, do that make them a dad because the people watching these movies are dads do that make him a dad because, you know, everyone can relate to that, do that, I don't know, dude, there, I said it again, man, that's, <laughs> I hate that I caught myself doing that, but, um, but, um, is another raffiism is just a common thing I say, yeah, I, I don't want to see Thor for two, for a while now, um, I don't have a problem with him having a kid that much, it, it's kind of a, I don't want to say a cop-out, but it's like, it's not a bold, like, end to his character. And, and to that effect, it isn't an end. And, and that's, you know, fair, I guess. Uh, my last note... <laughs> you can definitely tell I wrote this when I was a bit more angry at the movie. My last note is, I hope Taiko Waititi never directs a Marvel movie again. It's a bit harsh. Right? I don't know if I entirely agree with my opinion. <laughs> but, uh... It... Like... I like Taika Waititi, right? I, I like Thor Ragnarok. I'm sure if he directed something else within the Marvel scope, it would, it would really depend. But, like, I don't need more of this, I guess, it's like, a good summary of how I feel about Thor Love and Thunder. I don't need more of it. Like, Ragnarok gave me everything I, I like, not even wanted because I was surprised. But, like, Ragnarok was, like, great, Right? and when i when love and thunder was announced i was like oh more of great i'll take more of great i think the cup runneth over and that's not to say there was too much great in this movie but it's just like i, I don't know if it's too much of what style of directing or if it was just a a surplus of things that had to happen you know if if it's like yeah we we what wants to make this movie but marvel studios also wants to set up jane foster thor But we also want to, you know, we, T.T. really likes Valkyrie, and he really likes Korg, so they need to be in there. But Marvel Studios also needs to set up Zeus so they can set up Hercules so that they can put him on a future Dark Avengers team. We also got Christian Bale to be be Gore, so we really need to push Gore in this. Gore is going to be really cool and important. People are going to want to see this character do cool stuff. Um, um, But hey, don't forget, Natalie Portman came back, so we need to make sure we use a lot of Natalie Portman stuff. Like, it's just... A lot. <laughs> and I just I don't think it was as good as Ragnarok if that opinion has been made clear enough. And uh I don't know. I just think it's too much of a lot of things and I would have really enjoyed a tighter, simpler movie to follow. There's a lot of things in this movie I did mention that just feel unnecessary. And I don't just mean jokes, I mean like actual plot points that do not need to exist to, like, carry the the movie forward. A lot of things in this movie that, like... Just an example, right? And I swear I'm going to get to the end. (laughs) Because Thor's current hammer, Stormbreaker, is jealous of the way Thor feels about Mjolnir, uh, Stormbreaker has trouble teleporting Thor places, right? And Jane's still not good enough at it. So they can't teleport, which means they have to take a boat. And it's like... That entire plot point of having to take a ship and use it to fly to wherever they need to go, that entire plot point only exists because of a joke about Thor's hammer being jealous. I I don't have a problem with jokes, right? But I can't just simply enjoy something sometimes. Like, I just... I have a problem with it. And, like, I know... That a Taika Waititi Thor movie can be smarter, and I know that the jokes can hit harder, and I just wasn't feeling the same from this. And maybe I'm comparing it too much to the previous movie, but the whole reason we got this is because Ragnarok was such a success. So that's my opinion. Um, I definitely feel like it's going to be a more divisive one. You know, I, I didn't like Multiverse of Madness all too much. I didn't love this movie. Uh, I don't think it's a harbinger of anything. Um, I, I guess we'll find out when the next Black Panther comes out, um, but as it is, that's my review of Thor Love and Thunder. If you saw the movie and you enjoyed it, then good. I, I never want to take away a good time from anybody. Um, these are just my opinions, and I talk about them as an outlet, and I talk about them because I hope it's entertaining to somebody. I don't want to make you hate the movie. If what I said only makes you like the movie more, then good. Like, the more happy you are, the better. Um, but that's just how I feel, and I, I'm not gonna mince words, I'm not gonna sugarcoat my opinion, and I, I'm, I'm not impervious to being called a critic or a complainer, right? I, this is how I felt about the movie. I'm not apologizing for it. Um, as always, thank you for listening. You can follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, and I'll catch you guys next time. Goodbye.